Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 19, Joshua chapters 15, 16, and 17. Okay, settle in and keep your Bibles handy. Today we're going to cover three full chapters of Joshua. So get comfortable. Chapters 15, 16, and 17 because they cover the giving of the land on the west side of the Jordan to the most important of the twelve tribes. Judah and then Ephraim, but also to some degree Manasseh. Now, in a more technical sense, the two tribes of most importance, follow me, were Judah and Joseph. But Ephraim and Manasseh, for some divine reason, would take the place of the tribe of Joseph for a time. Now, the land on the west side of the Jordan was not the promised land. Pardon me. The land on the west side is the promised land. The land on the on the east is not the promised land. Nowhere else other than on the west side of the Jordan is the promised land. Okay. The land on the east side, though it was not the promised land, it was allotted by the Lord to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and about half of the tribe of the people of Manasseh because they asked for it. And Moses granted their requests. Now, why do I say that Judah and Ephraim are the most important of the tribes? Okay. Because the deathbed blessing upon his sons, known to us commonly as the tribes of Israel by Jacob, split the firstborn blessing into two parts. One part of it going to Ephraim, the other to Judah. Now, we're not going to fully review the last few chapters of Genesis where this series of Jacob's blessings occurred. But let me sum up what happened because it has so much to do with the redemption, salvation process that God developed for mankind as does the advent of the Messiah, Yeshua. Now, the way the continuity of leadership and control and wealth was passed down within the ancient families and clans and tribes of Israel was by means of a ceremony and a formal legal act called the firstborn blessing. Now, this concept was not at all unique to the Hebrews. It was a fairly standard thing within most tribal societies and to a large degree, it remains so to this day. The concept of the firstborn blessing was powerful and generally not alterable once it was made. It was also accepted as fully enforceable as any of the best contracts, that the most expensive of today's journeys could possibly draw up. The firstborn blessing that was used among the Hebrews and defined in the Bible by divine ordinance consisted of two basic parts. First, the double portion blessing. And second, the transference of ruling authority. The double portion blessing, therefore, involved wealth. It involved material blessing. While the transference of 
ruling authority dealt with inheritance of the tribal leadership. The two basic parts of the firstborn blessing were invariably linked together and usually the same person received both. Now the term the firstborn by definition means firstborn male offspring. There is no such thing in the Bible as a female firstborn. But something strange and important happened early in Hebrew history when Jacob split that firstborn blessing he was bestowing on his sons into its two basic parts and he assigned one part to Judah and the other part to Ephraim which we see down here at the bottom of this chart. Jacob transferred the leadership of the tribe of uh, Israel to Judah and the double portion blessing of wealth and material blessing to Ephraim. Now, that, that's not all that difficult to comprehend, is it? But wait, it's a little more complicated than that. In fact, even though the name Ephraim is used to describe the person who received Jacob's tribal wealth, in reality, it was Joseph who was the inheritor. Joseph was Ephraim's father. Some days or weeks before Jacob called for his sons to come together so he could pronounce the firstborn blessing before he passed away, he called Joseph to come to his bedside and to bring with him his two Egyptian-born sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh was Joseph's firstborn son. And so, when Joseph's father Jacob called his two grandsons to come forward so that he could bless him, bless them, Joseph was shocked when his father crossed his arms and put his right hand on the younger Ephraim's head and his left onto Manasseh's. The right hand is the greater hand. It is symbolic of the hand that bestows blessing and authority. Thus, when we read that Yeshua sits at the Father's right hand in heaven, it's because the one who sits to the right of the king or master is the most favored. Joseph even tried to correct his father. Probably because he thought the old and infirm and nearly blind Jacob was just making an unintentional error by placing the hand of greatest blessing on the younger of his two children. But Jacob abruptly told Joseph that he knew full well what he was doing. In in this blessing of his grandchildren, Jacob not only bestowed a greater status upon Ephraim, the younger of his two grandchildren, he also adopted both of those grandchildren away from Joseph. He changed the status of his grandchildren to sons. And in doing so, he displaced Joseph as a tribal progenitor and name and replaced him with Joseph's two sons who were now legally Joseph's brothers, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, while to us this may sound 
almost like some kind of weird, archaic punishment all right, upon Joseph. You know, in fact, it was all meant as blessing for him. Because in an instant, Joseph became not one, but two tribes. The newly formed Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph doubled. Okay. Not only that, but the scriptures explain that these two new tribes would go forward, it says, in the name of Joseph. Effectively, Ephraim and Manasseh would be as placeholders in history for Joseph's tribe until some undefined time far into the future when Joseph's tribal name would rise up again and take preeminence. But there was another effect in these ceremonies. Joseph, by means of Ephraim, was receiving the double portion part of the firstborn blessing. This would happen a few days or months later when Jacob formally pronounced the firstborn blessing with all of his sons present. By Joseph becoming two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, this was the double portion that he was promised. When Joseph's two tribes entered the promised land, they would each get territory. They would each establish wealth. And this would all eventually be ascribed to Joseph. So the double portion blessing became double in the most literal possible way. Now, since Ephraim was also now pronounced as the firstborn by Jacob, leaving poor Manasseh, the oldest child of Joseph, to lose his traditional place of honor as the actual firstborn, then it was Ephraim's name who became the greater of the two brothers. And so when the Bible speaks in shorthand, as it often does, expecting the reader to know what it's abbreviating, it will say that Ephraim carries the rod of authority for the tribe of Joseph and it says very little about Manasseh. So what we have to keep in the back of our minds when studying especially the Old Testament but also many sections of the New is that Ephraim is operating under the authority of the tribe of Joseph and that while Manasseh has become lesser in status than Ephraim the Lord hasn't forgotten about Manasseh. This especially comes back around in the tribal listings we see in Revelation that pertain to the end times and thereafter. Thus we come full circle. Judah was given the leadership of Israel. Ephraim, in the name of his father Joseph, was given um, more. Was given the double portion. This makes them the two most important tribes of Israel and so they're the first to receive the blessing of their land inheritance inside the promised land and that is the subject of Joshua chapters 15, 16, and 17. But now let me show you one more interesting thing. On the east side of the Jordan River, Manasseh was one of three tribes, Manasseh, Gad, Reuben, who took land possession there. What we're about to see in these next few chapters of Joshua is that Manasseh would also get another portion of land inside 
the promised land. Manasseh would wind up with two portions of land. This fulfills God's promise to Jacob, who had apparently followed God's divine instruction for him to elevate Ephraim to firstborn status above the elder Manasseh, of still giving a mighty blessing at a later date to Manasseh to make up for this undeserved removal of his rightful firstborn blessing. Listen to Genesis 48.18. Yosef said to his father, Don't do it that way, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know that, my son, I know it. He too will become a people. He too will be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants will grow into many nations. In a way only God could manufacture, Manasseh also received the double portion that belongs to the firstborn. He received a portion of land outside the promised land and a portion of land inside the promised land. And when we look back, we can now better understand at least one purpose for God permitting two and a half of Israel's tribes to settle on land outside of the promised land. Nothing in this world happens accidentally. Now, as we get ready to read Joshua 15 through 17, let's review what we learned from 14. The compiler of the book of Joshua gives us two important themes regarding the distribution of the land of Canaan. First, he's shown us that the promises and prophecies of the Torah to the patriarchs followed precisely that pattern that the Lord said it would. The right person distributed the land and the right persons received the land. The excluded persons were sent to their own land and priests in their Levite tribe were given no land inheritance and they were given no land responsibilities. Even the issue of expanding and contract, of contracting number of Israelite tribes is re-explained. And it is made clear that this is, is so that God can bring about his plan for Israel. Now we're also reminded that the land inheritance that each tribe would receive was for the good of the people. It was the result of a promise of Jehovah and not because some earthly king had arbitrarily given away tracts of land to aristocrats or political partners for his ultimate benefit. And the second theme of the compiler is to demonstrate just why it was that Judah had received that first promised land inheritance, even though the first allotment was not actually Judah, but only to the clan of Caleb, which was one of the many clans that formed Judah. This too fulfilled a promise. But it also demonstrated something that, frankly, many modern Jews would prefer to forget. The Lord gave a section of the promised land to a person of foreign origin. Caleb was in the line of Canaz, a line emitting from Edom, Esau. Caleb had been brought into the tribe of Judah for sure. And we know this from the book of Numbers as we hear the story of the 12 spies who go out to scout out the land of Canaan for Moses. But we see 
that the issue of receiving an inheritance from the God of Israel was much less about family and genealogy than it was about obedience to the Lord God. Caleb, Caleb was the perfect example of those who had received the land from God, but he would also be a reminder to future generations of Israelites who would lose the land because they followed instead the ways of Solomon. See, King Solomon did not follow the Torah. He instead had great lusts for personal wealth and power. So he led the life of an internationalist. He went to foreign lands. He brought home foreign wives. He permitted foreign ways and foreign gods to be brought into Israel. And that behavior lit the pathway to Israel's future destruction due to their rebellion and idolatry against God. It would be best, actually, if we read chapters 15, 16, and 17 in one sitting, but I don't think he could stand it. All right? You certainly wouldn't enjoy it, all right? as it contains long lists of cities and boundaries, frankly, most of which aren't even identifiable in our day. All right. So let's just read chapter 15. We'll talk about it for a few minutes and then we'll get into 16 and 17. So open your Bibles to chapter 15 of Joshua, which is on page 257 of the Complete Jewish Bible. Joshua 15. The territory chosen by Lot for the tribe of the descendants of Yehuda, according to their families, extended to the border of Edom, in the Sin Desert, toward the Negev in the far south. Their southern border began at the far shore of the Dead Sea from the bay facing southward and went out south of the Scorpion Ascent, passed toward Sin, went up south of Kadesh Barnea, passed Hetzron, went up towards Adar, turned towards Karcha, passed toward Atzmon, and went out to the Wadi of Egypt with the border ending at the sea. This will be your southern border. The eastern border was the Dead Sea to where the Jordan entered it. The northern border began at the Bay of the Sea at the end of the Jordan. Then the border went up to Bet Holah and passed north of Beit Arabah. Next to the border went up to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. Then the border went up to Debir from the Akor Valley, the northward facing Gilgal, that is across the Ma'alei Adumim which is on the south side of the Wadi. Next, the border passed to Ein Shemesh Spring and went out to Ein Rogel. Then the border went up to, to the Ben Hinnom Valley to the south of the Yavusi, that is Jerusalem. And the border continued up to the top of the hill in front of the Hinnom Valley on the west, which is also the northernmost end of the Rephaim Valley. From this hilltop, the border was drawn to the source of the Neftoach Spring and continued out to the cities of Mount Ephron. Next, the border was drawn to Baalah, that is Kiryat Yarim. Then the border turned from Baal westward to Mount Seir, past the spur of Mount Yarim, also called Asalon, to the north, went down to Beit Shemesh and past Timnah. Next, the border went out to the south uh, towards the side of Akron. Northward, finally, the border was drawn to Shikron, past Mount Baala, went out to Yavne'el, with the border ending at the sea. As for the west border, the Great Sea was its border. These were the borders of the territory of the defendants of Judah by clans. To Caleb, the son of Yefune, he gave a portion with the descendants of Judah, as Adonai had ordered Joshua, namely... Kiryat Arba, Arba was the father of Anak, 
also called Hebron. Kalev expelled from there three descendants of the Anak, Sheshai, Achman, and Talmai, children of Anak. And from there he went up to fight the inhabitants of Debir. Debir was formerly called Kiryat Sefer. Kalev said to whoever overpowers Kiryat Sefer and captures it, I will give my daughter Adar as his wife. Otniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's brother, captured it. So he gave him Achsah, his daughter, as his wife. After becoming his wife, she persuaded him to ask her father to give them a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you gave me land in the Negev, now also give me sources of water. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the descendants of Judah by clans. The cities at the outer part of the tribe of Judah towards the border with Edom in the south were Kavziel, Eder, Yagur, Kina, Demona, Ada, Kadesh, Hatsor, Yitnan, Zif, Telem, Belot, Hatsor, Hadata, Kriot, Hetzron, which is Hatsor, Amam, Shma, Molada, Hatsar Gada, Heshmon, Beit Palet, Hatsar Shual, Be'er Shiva, Yah, Bela, Aim, Eitzem, El Toldad, Ksil, Horma, Ziklag, Madmana, Sansana, Lavot, Shilchim, Aim, and Ramon. Twenty-nine cities in all, together with their villages. In the Shephelah, Eshtaol, Tzora, Ashna, Zanoach, Ein Ganim, Tapuah, Enam, Yarmut, Adulam, Soho, Ezecha, Shrim, Aditayim, Gedera, and Gederatayim. Fourteen cities together with their villages. Sanan, Hadasha, Migdal Gad, Gilan, Mitzpah, Yokteel, Lachish, Bozkat, Eglon, Kabon, Lachmas, Kitlish, Gerot, Beit Dagon, Naama, and Makeda, sixteen cities together with their villages. Libna, Eter, Ashan, Yiftach, Ashna, Natiz, Keela, Achziv, Marasha, nine cities together with their villages. Ekron, with its towns and villages, from Ekron to the sea, all those near Ashdod, with their villages. Ashdod, with its towns and villages. Azoth, Gaza, with its towns and villages, to the wadi of Egypt, with the great sea as its border. In the hills, Shamir, Yatir, Soho, Dana, Kiryat Sana, that is Dabir, Anav, Eshtmo, Anim, Goshen, Holon, and Gilo, eleven cities together with their villages. Arav, Duma, Eshan, Yanum, Beit Tapuach, Afeka, Humta, Kiryat Arba, Hebron, and Sur, nine cities together with their villages. Maon, Carmel, Zif, Utah, Yisrael, Yokdeam, Zanoach, Cain, Givna, and Timna, ten cities together with their villages. Halkul, Beit Zur, Dor, Ma'arat, Beit Anot, 
Eltkon, six cities together with their villages. Kiryat Be'al, that is Kiryat Yeramin, and Rabah, two cities together with their villages. In the desert, Beit Arava, Medin, Sachaka, Nifchan, Ir Hamalach, and Ein Gedi. Six cities together with their villages. As for the Yavusi who lived in Yerushalayim, the descendants of Judah could not drive them out. So the Yavusi live with the descendants of Judah in Yerushalayim to this day. Okay. That ought to have really uh, explained everything just great for you. You see, chapter 15 is about the distribution of the land of Judah. Caleb, the tribe of Judah, had already received some land. And now the whole of the land that Judah would receive is explained in this chapter. Believe me, it's not important for us to examine every city and boundary. For one reason, we'd never remember it. All right. A map's a lot better way to demonstrate what was officially given to Judah for its inheritance. Now, Judah was to be a rather large territory, as you can see. And the purpose of the second round of lots as supervised by Eleazar the high priest and Joshua, was to match the already decided relative location of each tribe in the land, decided by lots that Moses had officiated over some years earlier, with the population size of each of the tribes. Now, roughly speaking, the territory of Judah extended from north of the Dead Sea uh, over to the Mediterranean right? um, and south along the shore of the Dead Sea continuing towards Kadesh Barnea all right, over this direction all right, and then west to the Wadi Al-Sharish also called the Wadi of Egypt now because the nine and a half tribes territories were contiguous that is where one ended the next one began and bumped up against one another we're going to find as we go through this some boundary lines that seem repeated in later chapters as pertaining to the other tribal territories. For instance, the northern boundary of Judah was, of course, the southern boundary for Benjamin because they lay next to each other. Now, verse 12 is rather interesting when we understand what it infers. It says that the great sea, the Mediterranean, is Judah's westernmost boundary. The thing we know from earlier chapters is that Joshua took none of the coastal cities of Canaan. And the land given to Judah then essentially included parts of Philistia and their ally to the south, the Gerishites. Here's the thing to understand in all this. The giving of the land to the tribes was not only a gift of territory, it was the assigning of a responsibility to that tribe to finish conquering the territory. Much of Judah was conquered, but other parts of it, like the coast, were still in enemy hands. And it fell to the members of Judah's tribe to continue making war until that job was done. Later on in Joshua, we're going to see 
That is, it began to sink in to the minds of the other tribes just what it was that they were signing up for when they accepted their tribal land inheritance. They refused to take it. They said, no, thank you to Joshua and to God. And Joshua had to rally some muscle and support to get those tribes to agree to go ahead and accept their land inheritances. This, of course, harkens back to the exact same attitude that was displayed by 10 of the 12 scouts that were sent out by Moses from Kadesh to reconnoiter the promised land. And they came back with a resounding, eh, thanks, but no thanks. Only Caleb, Caleb from the tribe of Judah and Yahshua, Joshua from the tribe of Ephraim said, that Israel should believe God and take the land. Thus, Israel was sent away by God to wander in the wilderness until that generation had died off. And notice that because history is indeed circular and thus repeats itself, Caleb, Caleb, the tribe of Judah, and Joshua, tribe of Ephraim, immediately took their land inheritances, inheritances when it was offered to them, while the others balked at it. So in verse 13, we get back to the history of Caleb and his land inheritance and we're told that the area he was given wasn't fully conquered yet. But Caleb actually asked for this unconquered area, area which was a sign of great courage and merit and trust in God. Further, the Lord told Joshua that he was to give it to Caleb. It was the Lord's order to do it. So it was a done deal. Now the area it was speaking of was Hebron, which if you know anything about Israel today, all right, is really technically, or at least in, in modern terms, in an area called the West Bank that's outside of Israel. All right? It was under the control of the Anakites, okay, a race of giant fierce warriors. And we're told that in time, after Joshua's death, actually, Caleb's clan would finally drive out the, rule, the three ruling clans of the Anakites, Shishai, Achiman, and Talmai. But apparently, Caleb's clan had considerably more trouble conquering the area of Debir. So much so, that Caleb decided the best course of action for him was to seek a volunteer leader to try and take the beer, to whom he'd award his daughter Achsa as a wife, if that person was successful. Now, please notice that the complete Jewish Bible renders this daughter's name in verse 16 as Adar, and then in verse 17 as Achsa. I don't know why. All right. And the Hebrew is the same for both passages, except it's maybe a simple error or something more to this I've never found. Now, let me pause for a second and point out something. When I went through and read that interminable list of names for you, there were a lot of double names for the same place, such as Debir and Kiryat Sefer, for instance. Now, the reasoning behind this is really very simple. One name is the name it was called in the Canaanite language 
and the other was the name the Hebrews called it. Even today, we find this in the Middle East, especially in Israel. Jerusalem is called by the Arabs Al-Quds. Of course, the the Hebrews call it Yerushalayim. We call it Jerusalem. Both names, Al-Quds and Yerushalayim, are accepted there. The Middle East is very ancient. Places have changed hands countless times. Languages have shifted and changed. And different cultures live side by side, each within the framework of their own unique cultural history and tradition. A significant number of these ancient places still go by double names today. Now back to Caleb offering his daughter to the man who would take the city of Debir. A fellow named Othniel managed to do it and so received Caleb's daughter. Now, what is kind of interesting is that Othniel was actually Caleb's younger brother. So what we have here is that that Othniel was actually Oxaw, the daughter's uncle. So we have a niece being given to her uncle as a bride. Now, this was legal. And it was done often in the Bible era. It also served to keep power concentrated within a given clan. Now remember, while we tend to think mainly of the twelve tribes of Israel when dealing with the Bible, it was actually the individual clans within each tribe where the real power lay. The reality, this this kind of reality, the, the power of the clans, has played out a bit for us in the following verse when right after the marriage Achsah approaches her father Caleb and asks him for a field which of course this was at the urging of her new husband her former uncle okay. apparently Caleb had given Achsah some land in her bride's dowry but this land was in the Negev it wasn't very good land probably arid and now Aksa came back to her father and said, "Now nah, I need something with some little water on it, Dad. You know, this would like really help." All right. Well, this chapter finishes up by dividing the land of Judah into four districts for reference that are really climate and fertility regions. The south land, uh, the Negev. The lowlands. The Shefla, the mountains, of course, um, and then uh, the Judean desert farther to the south. Now, the Negev is really kind of a, of a tra- transition zone, if you would, in Israel. It transitioned from the fertile regions of the Shefla and the mountains to the barren desert. So the Negev could grow crops in some areas, be marginal pasture lands in other areas, But then as it neared the desert wilderness, the soil just became dry and unusable. The Shephelah transitioned from the mountains to the sea. It had excellent growing conditions with rich soil, so it was prime farming grounds. The mountains were excellent for um, grazing, for pasture lands. Um, And then where there were plateaus or where they could create terraces... They supported orchards and vineyards. The Judean desert, furthest to the south, 
was a wasteland with practically no vegetation or water in it. Now, we're not going to study by any means this long list of cities and villages we were given. So I just want you to understand, though, that there is a basis for the biblical grouping of these cities and villages as it's been laid out for us. You see, these various villages within a group were cooperative. And to some degree, they depended on one another. Geography also plays a big role in this, just as it always has in determining where you can even have a village or a town and where you can't. Look, before the era of canals and massive land-moving machinery, here in Florida, towns were built along natural waterways or on higher ground, a little bit above the swampy areas. You might have a few square miles of natural high ground suitable for crops, for livestock, maybe for the construction of stores and houses separated from the next suitable area by many miles and a lot more swamps. So towns and villages got clustered on areas of suitable ground. You might have to go a long distance before you found another ideal area where you could build. Transportation between these islands of civilization could be very difficult even 50 years ago here in Florida, let alone 3,000 years ago. But when a cluster of villages is on a large enough parcel, then commerce and the common defense is much more possible, and working together this group of villages becomes more or less self-sufficient. That's the reason we find these groupings of villages listed in Joshua 15. These are clusters of villages separated from the other clusters of villages by geography. And whether that geography is miles of parched desert, high mountains with few passes, a lake, maybe a river, these village clusters depended on one another. They acted together as a rather complete local economy. They were, there was usually one main city in a cluster with some larger towns and then a whole lot of smaller villages. Further, certain clans tended to prefer certain areas. Perhaps one clan was renowned for a trade class, uh, tradecraft, another for expert winemaking, others for shepherding. It, it was better for everybody in a clan if they were the dominant clan in a cluster of villages located in a district that best suited their needs and their skills there was less conflict there was more cooperation marriage between families within a clan happened and that was the most desirable thing okay and the all-important power of the clan would have the best chance to grow with the fewest impediments outside influences Well, the final verse of chapter 15 makes it clear that whenever the compiler of Joshua lived, it was definitely before the time of King David. Because he says that the Yabusi, what we call the Jebusites, who still lived in Jabus, which is the ancient name for what is now called Jerusalem, still controlled it. And the tribe of Judah up to that point had had no luck in driving them out. Let's move on quickly to chapter 16 and 17. I'm going to read both of these together. 
page 259 of the complete Jewish Bible. The border of the territory chosen by Lot for the descendants of Joseph began from the Jordan at Jericho, at the spring of Jericho on the east, went up from Jericho through the hills and desert to Bethel, went out from Bethel to Luz, passed on to the border with, with the uh, Archi to Ataroth, went down westward to the border with the Yafteli to the border of Lor, Beit Horon, on to Gezer and ending at the sea. So the descendants of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim took their inheritance. The border of the descendants of Ephraim, according to their families, was as follows. The eastern border of their inheritance began at Atrot Adar and went to Upper Beit Haron. Then the border extended westward with Mikhamat on the, uh, on, on the north. Next, the border turned eastward to, to Anat Shiloh and passed by it to the sea east of uh, Yanocha. Then it went down to the Yanocha to the Atarot went to Na'ara, extended to Jericho and east, and ended at the Jordan. From Tepua, the border went westward to the Wadi Kana and ended at the sea. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the descendants of Ephraim, according to their families, together with the city set aside for the descendants of Ephraim, inside the territory to be inherited by the descendants of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages. They did not drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived together with Ephraim to this day, having become slaves to do the heavy work. Chapter 17. This was the territory chosen by Lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. As for Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilad, because he was a warrior, he got Gilad and Bashan. So the Lot was drawn for the other descendants of Manasseh according to their families. For the descendants of Abiezer, Helek, Asriel, Shkem, Hefer, and Shmidah. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, according to their families. But Solafchad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilad, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons, only daughters. These are the names of his daughters. Machla, Nua, Hogla, Milka and Tirzah. They approached Eleazar the Kohen, Joshua the son of Nun, and the leaders, and said, Adonai ordered Moses to give us an inheritance together with our kinsmen. Therefore, in keeping with Adonai's order, he gave him an inheritance together with the kinsmen of their father. Thus ten parts fell to Manasseh, in addition to the land of Gilad and Bashan beyond the Jordan. Because the daughters of Manasseh had an inheritance along with his descendants, but the land of Gilad belonged to the rest of the descendants of Manasseh. I'm going to stop there. We're going to talk about this for a minute, and then we're going to call it a day. Okay, the deal is Judah has its land. Now it's time for the Joseph tribes to get their lands. Notice that in chapter 16, verse 1, it says that a lot was drawn for the descendants of Joseph. In other words, only one lot was drawn for Ephraim and Manasseh together, not one for each. And it was done in the name of Joseph. This is why I went through this long explanation at the beginning of today's lesson. The Joseph tribe now consisted of the separate tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, with Ephraim being the most dominant. So the boundary description we get to start this chapter 
is of the entire area that Ephraim and Manasseh would hold together. So even though from one perspective, Ephraim and Manasseh held independent and autonomous tribal areas, from another viewpoint, they were looked at as a single entity, the tribe of Joseph. This land allotment for the Joseph tribe did not have a common border with Judah. It represented the northernmost land conquered by Joshua. The land in between the two tribes who formed the Joseph tribe would eventually be given to other tribes of Israel. The border to the east was the Jordan River. To the west was the Mediterranean. Well, after the first five verses have defined the total territory given to the Joseph tribe, now it's divided between Ephraim and Manasseh, with Ephraim getting his first because he's the first, he has the firstborn rights. The most pertinent information beyond the giving of the territorial boundaries is that in the area of Gezer, the Ephraimites were unable to drive out the Canaanites who lived there. But we're going to find out in later books that Ephraim did manage to subjugate them and basically use them as serfs. That is, this is going to be a theme that we're going to find constantly playing out when it regards the promised land. The tribes accept their land inheritance after a while. Then they kind of work a little bit at driving out the Canaanites. But as often as not, they can't or they find a reason not to. So they settle for a compromise. For the Lord God, though, compromise is a human concept. That's not a heavenly concept. Compromise isn't a middle ground between, between doing what's wrong and what's right or some type of marginally accepted area that lay between obedience and disobedience, something kind of in the middle. Okay. Compromising God's principles and instructions is called sin. Sin has long-ranging consequences that might not be totally apparent for decades or maybe even centuries. You know, quickly the text moves on to the land allotment for the other Joseph tribe, Manasseh. And by the way, I want you to note that you're going to see from me and in other places, Manasseh spelled a couple of different ways. Now, since we are but attempting to sound out a Hebrew word in English, the point is to form a series of alphabet characters that can get us pretty close to the way the word sounds in its original tongue. Therefore, there is no one correct spelling for most Hebrew words that are being pronounced with English grammar rules. It's just to get it close enough. And it's interesting that in this verse we are reminded that Manasseh was the firstborn of Joseph. And this bit of text emphasizes this unusual nature in the order of the land allotment. Ephraim first, Manasseh second. And I think that just as we struggle in our time so mightily with how to apply the law of the Old Testament to our lives. Taking into account the coming of our Savior and what that means. Plus, adding in the realities of this enormously different modern Western culture that we live in from an ancient Hebrew one and how, I I think it should be able to give us to some degree at least, how hard it was for the Hebrews to apply and accept some of these giant curveballs that God would throw at them from time to time. 
I mean, and the Ephraim and Manasseh situation, whereby the secondborn was given the firstborn rights, must have chafed at those tribes. I mean, how are they going to apply this? Did Ephraim get all the rights of the firstborn, or did Manasseh get some of it? Just how literally, to what length were they to apply Jacob's cross-handed blessing to the hierarchy of tribal leadership and the rights of property possession? However, I also think that while virtually every Bible scholar and commentator I've ever read looks at this statement about Manasseh as only a statement that both acknowledges and apologizes for having the natural firstborn son, Manasseh, get his land and allotment only after the natural secondborn son, Ephraim, got his, which frankly was a nearly unthinkable breach of inheritance protocols in that era, it's obvious to me that it is also set down for us in order to explain why it is that only Manasseh wound up with two separate and distinct territories when everybody else got one. After all, that is a question that certainly would have been asked by those other tribal leaders and their clans for centuries. How come Manasseh got two and I got one? All one has to do is to look at a map to see that not only did Manasseh get one territory on the east side and another on the west, but those territories are huge in relation to what the other tribes got. I see that in God's amazing provision, Manasseh still got a double portion that a firstborn is normally entitled to even though the Lord, for his own sovereign reasons, supernaturally instructed Jacob to switch the birthrights of Ephraim and Manasseh. There is utterly no hint that Manasseh had done anything wrong. We're going to continue on with this chapter and look at another biblical oddity it contains next week.